Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Calvary Baptist. Uh, on behalf of Calvary Baptist, I just want to extend again a warm welcome to everyone. Uh, we want you to know this morning that we are not a perfect church. We, simp- we are simply a church of poor sinners that have found Jesus to be the most beautiful and most wonderful. We believe in the power of the gospel. We believe in the inspired word of God. We believe that no, that no matter what your struggle is today, you can find the answer in the gospel. My sermon in a word today is unity. And before I even start in it, I just want everyone to understand that I, I'm not speaking on unity today because I sense disunity. Um, what Jen and I have experienced here at Calvary over the last year, I just have to say, is we're overwhelmed with. It's been amazing. Uh, We love this church. We really love this church. We love you uh, individually, and we've gotten to know you over this past year, and it's been truly amazing. So I don't want anyone to to start on a defensive and think that something is out of way. Out of of course here, it's not. What I'm going to speak on today kind of comes from my background and what I've seen happen to good churches. Um. Just because things are good now doesn't mean that they can always stay good. And so we have to be on guard against disunity within the church body. Uh, You know, like I said, I I remember growing up and growing up around church. And I remember things happening and, and, and just being, as a young Christian, so disheartened. I remember one morning, one father of a family got up to pray and another entire family walked out. That happens in church. And as a young believer, I remember sitting there that morning and just just wondering, what's all this about? Because what we're preaching, what we're saying is one thing, but how we're living is completely different. I remember another time sitting on the church steps with a dear man that I still love dearly, and the disappointment and the anguish that was in his heart, because, you see, he had been called in to do a church plant. He had labored for two years, preaching, renovating a building. And as I sat there with him, he was close to tears. And he said, you know, sometimes the church can be like a football game. You've got the team on the field laboring, but then you've got all these spectators heckling. And what had happened is just one elder one elder in the local church decided that he was no longer in support of the mission of planting the church. And that's all it took for the whole thing to fail. We, as a church right now, I must say, we're we're in 2015, it's pretty amazing. We've been riding some pretty big waves. We're seeing our numbers grow. People are being saved. Do you get that? I got to be careful because I get emotional. Do we get that? In 2015, because of God working in this church, not because of us, but people have repented unto life. God's blessings have rained on us this year. 
but we still need to guard against division. We can't be um, proud, and I'm going to get to that in just a little minute. We need to guard against it. Like I said, I grew up in a world where disunity became the norm. It, It wasn't always like that, but it became like that. At least once a month then, someone would be preaching on unity because everyone knew it was a mess. But nothing would change. Somehow the people in the church thought being right was more important than being unified. Being right suddenly became, and not suddenly, but over time, was more important than the cause of the gospel. In order to protect our unity, I believe we need to work on two things. Those two things, and the first thing are to protect the unity, is we need humility. Jesus gave us a perfect example. In Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Paul writes, Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped at, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Do we not see this form of a servant in John chapter 13, verse 5? when he washes the disciples' feet. Let's take a moment. Let's pause here in this busy Christmas season and take time to think about this. The God of heaven stoops down, pours water in a basin, and washes his disciples' feet. If that image does not humble us this morning, There's nothing that will. The one that spoke the worlds into existence gets down on his knees. And I mean, those days they wore sandals, their feet were smelly, it wasn't like us and our pretty socks and everything else. And he gets down there and he washes their feet. One has said, and I believe I heard this recently, um, I think it was David Jeremiah, and he said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, okay? Humility is not woe is me type of attitude. Humility is thinking more of others than yourself. A humble Christian is not hard to get along with because they think more of others than themselves. They want individuals to do well. They want the church to succeed, and they're not interested in power. They're not interested in climbing up the church ladder. They're not interested in seeing their own way being put forward. They want the cause of the gospel to win out at the end of the day. And I believe after humility, second thing we need to work on is to be aware of pride. Always examining our hearts because we're human beings, we're wretched sinners, and even though we're saved by grace, It's always the possibility for pride to kind of creep back into things. Proverbs 16 and 18 says, Pride goes before destruction. I'm in my mid-30s. It's funny because when I was writing this, I keep chuckling about this, but I, I have to ask my wife at least two or three times a year how old I am. Like, that's how fast life is going these days. I'm like, Jan, am I 35 or 36? You know, John, you're 36. Okay, great. That's awesome, Jan. But... But really, in my mid-30s, I have seen this played out several times. Pride goes before destruction. I have seen godly, gifted men implode. 
You look at David. You look at you look at the span of the Bible. You look at time. Men that were after God's own heart that failed. And so we have to be careful of pride. Visualize the skyscraper with dynamite wired at the foundation. And the countdown begins for a proud man. Five, four, three, two, one. Any of us can fall. Total destruction can come to someone who becomes proud. This humbles me. It reminds me that we as individuals, Christian members of the body of Christ, we must remain humble in 2016 because pride does go before destruction. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12, 10, verse 12, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. I, I think it was the, one of the first times Steve spoke here. I really loved it because he said, you know, sometimes as we as Christians, we get a couple more verses remembered and we're getting up early in the morning and we're doing all the things that we need to do and we've got a good Christian dance going on and all of a sudden we think we've arrived spiritually. I think that's what Paul is saying here. Don't think that you've arrived spiritually in 2016. No matter how good things are going, they can get bad. If we do not honor the Lord and we become proud, pride creeps into our lives. In this time of great blessing, we as a church cannot be proud. This is a time to be humbled under the mighty hand of God. God in his sovereign will has shown mercy on us and others in 2015. We had nothing to do with it. You might be wondering what we might be able to do or what we could do this year that would grieve the Spirit of God? Are there things that would really kind of cripple this church, really cause it to stop growing, stop seeing people saved? Well, I think what we can do is allow divisions to creep in. My text today is from a, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Before we go there, let's take a look back in time to see how the church in Corinth was, was started. The church was established by Paul in around A.D. 49. At the time of Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, a lot of issues had come to light. My mom always says to me growing up, you know, John, your sin, be sure your sins will find you out. Well, in Corinth's sins had been found out by Paul and God. One commentator put it this way concerning the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church had a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery. The surgery had to be performed without killing the patient. To further understand 1 Corinthians, there are a couple of other things that we have to keep in mind. The letter in its entirety is addressed to the whole church. Some people like to segment things and kind of divide it all up. This is a letter that was written to a church in Corinth. It's not segmented into portions for believers and unbelievers. And he is taking the church on at every turn, correcting them with the different concerns that he had for the church. Paul mentions at least 10 11 different concerns, and 10 of them were behavioral. To give us a little more context of 1 Corinthians, we need to link it to Acts 18. 
Paul's first association with the Corinthians was the founding visit mentioned in Acts 18. So if you have a Bible with you, turn in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native, Pont a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. In verse 8, the Corinthian church was born. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Verse 9, something profound happens. The Lord says to Paul, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have, for I have many in this city who are my people. God has people in this city as well, the city of St. John's, that are his. Church, they just don't know it yet. Just like the Lord said to Paul, do not be silent, for God has many in this city who are his. They just didn't know it yet. Paul writes in Romans, how then can they call on one who they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Church, preach the gospel. Not just from the pulpit here on Sunday, but to those God has placed in your path every day. God is working in this city, and he's using this church to see souls saved. People are turning from their sin and trusting Christ. To give us a little comparative, Corinth would have been the Las Vegas of the ancient world. So Paul shows up and does what the Lord asks him to do. He preaches, and many believe. Paul goes to the Jews, and they reject the gospel. I should point out that not all the Jews, the Jewish people, rejected the gospel. In Acts 2, Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, and about 3,000 Jews repent. The first Christians were Jews. Many in Corinth repented and believed the gospel. You might say that this presented Paul with many challenges, just as it will present us with many challenges if God answers our prayers and people get saved and come into this church. Imagine many of what we consider to be the dirtiest, wretched sitters in St. John's turn from their sin and trust Christ. Church, that's what we're praying for. There are many in this city who are God's people. They just don't know it yet. So now we have the context of how and when the Corinth church was planted. 
turns to your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin reading at verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, Paul speaks to the church and he says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When they meet in one place as a church, should be interpreted, should not be interpreted, interpreted as a location. It means as a church, not in church. Remember, we are the church. We did not come to church. We assemble today as a church. In verse 18, Paul uses the same Greek word, schism, that he uses in chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be no divisions, no schisms among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. It's important, though, to recognize here that the chapter 1 divisions that Paul writes about it in 1 Corinthians and chapter 11 are not the same. Chapter 1, Paul addresses divisions regarding loyalties to teachers. Remember, they were quarreling about loyalty to Paul, Apollos, Cephas. The divisions in chapter 11 that were our text deals with today were along mostly economic lines. Some had food, some had none. The church had been divided into haves on the one side and the have-nots on the other. The end of verse 18, Paul says he partly believes the reports that he's getting. Some find it, and some commentators actually when I was studying this, found it perplexing that Paul added that. I believe this in part. It's like he's saying, I've received this report, but knowing human beings, there's most likely some exaggeration to these reports. I think Paul is being pretty wise here. Uh, you know, it, we, we see this in our kids all the time, and sometimes we're no different than our kids. You know, Evan pushes somebody, and I say, Evan, did you push that little girl? And he says, yes, but she was being mean to me, Dad. There's usually two sides to the story. So Paul here is, is doing the wise thing in, in his situation where he's not there, and he's not taking his sides. He's not going to take sides in the matter. I think it's important to remember that. What Paul does is he addresses the issues directly. Differences had to be settled, no matter what the stories were, in order for the church to assemble properly. In verse 17, Paul says, When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Are we getting how serious Paul is taking these divisions? He's telling the church, if you don't get your act together, it's better for you not to get together at all. In verse 19, things get really real. And I read this verse a lot of times, but until I was studying this, I didn't really see it. In verse 19, Paul gets real. Most point people miss the point of 1 Corinthians 11 altogether. Until about six months ago, until I really started looking into this chapter, I really didn't understand it myself. But it take, you have to take time and you have to study the Word of God. Let's read verse 19 again. 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. I'd read that many times, never really thought much about it. Puzzling, I found it puzzling. What does Paul mean by genuine? Paul is almost saying it's good that there are divisions now. Does he suddenly think divisions are a good thing? He just said that we should not be divided. What Paul here is doing in verse 19 is sobering up some of the Christians who were maybe drunk on power or pride, some of them even on wine. Verse 19 is like a, glo a glass of cold water in the face of the Christians. One commentator put it this way, and we should listen to it carefully. Such divisions reveal those who are genuinely Christ, and the proof lies not in the correct belief system, but in the, but in the behavior that reflects the gospel. When you think about it, this makes sense. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. Christians, we can't hold grudges. How can we when we have obtained mercy? Where would we be if it was not for the grace of God? My new favorite Spurgeon quote, someone put it on Facebook this week. If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Isn't that true? If people really knew us, how, how bad would they really think of us? If they knew what goes through our minds sometimes and how often we have to check ourselves before God and go to the throne of grace, we can't be proud. We must be humble. You've got to love Spurgeon and you've got to love Paul. He's saying to the church, if you are treating your brothers and sisters in Christ like second-class citizens, are you going to go then to the Lord's table? And call yourself a Christian? He's saying these divisions will prove who really loves Christ. That's sobering. The ones who lay down their lives in sacrifice, the ones who live the grace that they have been shown, they're the true Christians, according to Paul. Paul's sharp rebuke in verse 19 would have caused an attitude of repentance in a true believer. This rebuke in 19 would have went over the head of the unbeliever. But the believer's conscience would have been pricked by what Paul said. 1 John 4 and 20, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. To be clear here, I'm not saying that it's not possible for Christians to have a falling out either. That happens. Matthew 18, we don't have time to go into it now, but if we looked at Matthew 18, we're given instructions how to deal with, with falling outs between Christians. But Paul is saying, if that's what we're known for, and there's never any repentance made, then that's a major concern for a church. And really, that's where someone really needs to examine themselves. 
And in verse 28, if we read on, Paul would say, examine yourself, guys. He takes the division so seriously, he implores the Christian to examine the heart, proving that you are genuine, can be done by digging out the roots of bitterness. By going to someone you have offended and begging forgiveness. That's the fruit of the Spirit. That's love. That's Christian. After all, what's the most famous gospel verse? For God so loved the world. How did Jesus say the world would recognize his followers? John 13 and 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. How will they know? If you love one another. That's the mark of a Christian. Remember when Jesus finds Peter fishing after the resurrection? And Peter's gone back to work. He's not doing what he's supposed to be doing. Yet Jesus sits him down in love and he says to Peter, do you love me? Jesus frustrates Peter because he asks him three times, do you really love me, Peter? This is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. The greatest narrative, I, I love it. I think about it all the time. Because when I'm, when I'm tempted to sin, I hear the voice, Jonathan, do you love me? When I'm thinking bad thoughts about someone else, Jonathan, do you love me? Do you really love me? Then if you do, give your whole life to me. When we give everything to Jesus, how can we divide his church? How can we cause divisions in a church that God has given his son to die for? Moving on to verses 20 through 22, Paul says, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So after a sobering rebuke in verse 19, Paul gets back to when the Christians come together. This is the only instance in the New Testament we have the language the Lord's Supper. Paul contrasts the Lord's Supper with private meals in verses 21 and 22. Here is where we see a major breakdown in the doctrine that Paul had established when the church had been planted in Acts 18. Remember how Pastor Steve keeps reminding us that right doctrine leads to right living, which leads to right relationships? Well, here we have another practical example of how wrong doctrine will lead to wrong living and wrong relationships. The divisions were so serious that it is not the Lord's Supper that they were observing at all, even though they thought it was. The divisions in Corinth meant that coming together was not for the better, but for the worse. And although they had, though they thought they were remembering the Lord, they thought they were remembering the Lord. They were not. They had divided the church into haves and have-nots. And that is the opposite of what the gospel teaches. 
No one in this situation was putting their needs was ever or no one in this situation was putting others' needs before their own. They were not serving one another. The rich were going ahead and filling their bellies. Gordon Fee puts it this way. Paul's point is that in eating what is supposed to be a meal consecrated to the Lord, some by their actions were actually eating their own private meals. The Lord's Supper is not a private meal for some. If you have trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Lord's Supper is for you. This is not a scary supper. This is the most grace-filled meal that the church participates in. This is the Lord's Supper. So Paul tells the church in verse 22 to stop it. Stop dividing God's people. Come together in unity and enjoy the Lord's Supper. And then Paul in 23 explains the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the covenant, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now in verse 23, 26, Paul lays down proper doctrine. He reminds them again, this is how you observe the Lord's Supper. Could I just say that some of my greatest memories as a Christian have been at the Lord's Supper? It's been nearly three years now. I was playing my guitar in my living room one Sunday morning, and Jen and I were not attending any church at this time. Across the room was my boy. And he was humming the words as I was singing this song. And something really cut me as I realized the words that Evan was humming was not a Christian song. And this was a Lord's Day. I laid down my guitar by the couch. I went to the kitchen and I told Jenny, we have to find a church. West End Baptist was the closest one to my house. It was only three or four minutes away. We packed up the car. I got a shower as fast as I could. We didn't even know what time the church started and we made a beeline. I can't really remember too much about what Pastor Gordon spoke on that morning. But God had a word for me. As he finished his sermon and he gave his illustrations, he used the illustration of a father wrestling with his son. Imagine that. He explained that there was no way that a 30-pound-year-old boy would ever be able to take his father down to the ground when they're wrestling unless the father let him.
He finished by saying that no 40-pound sin or doubt could take the believer down or separate us from the love of our Father. At the end of that service, we celebrated the Lord's communion. I guess some would say, rededicated my life to the Lord. The song that they sang that, that morning was all for Jesus. All that I am and have and ever want to be. Are you hurting this morning? Has God brought you in this morning? Is sin ruling your life? Are you doubting? This is what you need. This is the gospel. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. The apostle Paul understood this when he wrote in Galatians 2 and 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the gospel. And although the Lord's Supper is not about us. We have to know Jesus in order to enjoy him. One writer put it this way, the Lord's Supper is in remembrance of Christ to keep fresh in our minds that he died for us. And since this wasn't the tradition that the, Corinthian, the Corinthians were keeping, Paul repeats the words of the instructions in verse 23, 26. He sets out right doctrine and how to observe the Lord's Supper. So now as we move to the Lord's Supper, let's do it united as a family. A family in Calvary Baptist that will continue to strive for unity in 2016 because there are many in this city who are God's people. They just don't know it. Shall we pray? Our Father, we thank you for your mercy and your love. You have poured out your grace onto us this year. And Father, we just thank you. Father, we pray that as we now partake in the, your supper, as we remember you, that our hearts would be filled with you and thoughts of you. And that, Father, we would 
in our hearts determine this year to live for you and see souls saved. And that, Father, maybe this time next year, we will celebrate this supper with maybe twice as many as this. Oh God, let us dream big. Let us cling to you for mercy. Father, just bless your word. We just pray, oh God, that your word that has been spoken, not mine, will be blessed and souls will repent unto life. In Jesus' name, amen.